When Tearing Pharmaceuticals raised the price of a life-saving drug from $13.50 to $750 a pill, it brought the issue of high drug prices into the spotlight, reminding us that the cost of drugs has been rising for decades. For this week's Please Explain, we're discussing drug pricing with Melissa Thomason, professor of economics at Miami University of Ohio's Pharma School of Business, and Peter Bach director of the Center for Health Policy and Outcomes at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. Welcome to our show. Uh, thank you for Thanks having me. Much. And we invite our listeners to join the conversation during these Please Explain segments. You can call us at 212-433-9692. You can write to us on our show page at WNYC.org or on Facebook or Twitter, where our handle is at Leonard Lopate. Uh, Melissa, in order to understand drug pricing in this country, should we first talk about the modern health about modern health insurance? Well, it certainly plays a big role in it um, because we know that when consumers have health insurance and they don't necessarily pay the direct cost of those drugs, they're less price sensitive to it. So what will typically happen is that to the extent that insurance companies pick up those prices, consumers don't pay them and they're not as likely to pay attention. What was the quality of health care like before the Great Depression, before... um we actually had health insurance. Well, I think that before the, before the Great Depression, we didn't have health insurance, but we also didn't have a lot of effective medical care. Um, you know, the first antibiotic, sulfa, wasn't publicly available until 1937. And so if you're really talking about the 1910s and 1920s, what physicians could do was diagnose you, tell you about germ theory and hygiene, but they really couldn't treat anything. Did World War II have an effect on this, the changing healthcare system? And World War II had a huge effect in a few ways. Um, first, it, became, it started an environment where firms were facing labor shortages. They couldn't raise wages to attract more workers, and so they turned to fridge benefit packages to attract those workers. And it also spurred um, the development and accelerated the development of penicillin, which became the first, you know, antibiotic and the first. Well, I suppose relative to sulfur, the second most effective drug, but certainly an important development in 1946. And as I understand it, even though it was uh, invented in England, it was it was wasn't until it could be manufactured in Brooklyn that penicillin was made available on in large quantities. That's correct. So it was invented in I. I believe, and I could be wrong here, 1922 by Alexander Fleming. But it's one thing to discover a drug and a whole other thing to come up with a way of producing it relatively inexpensively and consistently. And I just thought we would uh, give a little credit to Brooklyn there. Didn't the IRS also play a role in promoting health insurance after World War II? And the IRS played a significant role. Beginning in 1943 and codified in 1954, the IRS ruled that when employers pay the health insurance premiums of employees, those contributions are exempt from employee income tax. And so, again, firms and consumers both preferred to receive some share of wages in, in the form of health insurance premium contributions because they didn't have to pay income tax on those dollars. But did that also cover drugs? So it didn't initially, right? If we look at, at historical data in very few drugs were available, and, you know, it it just didn't cover it. By and large, Blue Cross and Blue Shield, which were the predominant forms of insurance at that point, only covered hospital um, 
care in the hospital and care for physician services outside the hospital and then kind of surgery and visits in the hospital. But there, weren't, there wasn't actually prescription drug coverage explicitly until much later, I would say in the 60s and the 70s. Um, it, it, drugs were expensive in this country even in the 60s. I had a personal experience. I um, was in England and a doctor gave me a drug for practically nothing. Uh, and then uh, he, I came here and this, a doctor prescribed the drug and it was a simple drug and it cost $45. It was um, acid to... Uh, to treat a Veruca. Um, right. $45 for a, a little bottle of acid. Uh, I realized even then that um, prices were very high in this country. And I, at that point, I wasn't covered by insurance. Right. Well, $45, particularly in 1960, is a significant amount of money, and it is even today. But it's interesting that you bring up the international comparison because, as you know, we have a very unique system of health insurance coverage here relative to, um, say, a national health insurance system like they have in Canada or a national uh, medical system like they have in England, where those systems were in place in Canada in the 50s and England even before that, where um, to some extent the government, in, in Britain, for example, the government is determining drug prices and, and there's less of a corporate issue there. So those drug prices are controlled by the government and they're not subject to market forces. I'm speaking with Melissa Thomason, who's professor of economics at Miami University's Pharma School of Business. Also with us is Peter Bach, the director of the Center for Health Policy and Outcomes at Memorial Sloan Kettering Center, uh, Cancer Center. Uh, today's topic, I'm please explain, is drug prices. And Peter, how did you become interested in studying the fluctuating costs of prescription drugs? Well, thank you for having me. And my interest comes from what has been a become a painful problem for patients uh, with very rapidly rising prices for drugs, which uh, as they go through our insurance system, much of the costs end up passed on to patients who are in need. And uh, I work at an innovative research institution that is involved with developing new drugs, and some of these new drugs in cancer and other diseases are highly effective. And so it is uh, difficult to watch uh, patients who then could benefit from these treatments not being able to get them because of what is fundamentally uh, runaway prices. Do doctors take into account the cost of treatment or drugs that they're prescribing? Uh, doctors don't typically do that uh, for a couple of reasons. First, uh, we are all trained fundamentally to be advocates for our patients. Uh, and the other reason is that in a normal encounter with a patient, uh, the doctor can't actually see the price that the patient will pay. Uh, maybe you have their insurance information, but that's not enough to know that when they go over to the pharmacy to pick up a prescription, if they're going to owe a dollar, five dollars, or in some cases two thousand dollars to pick up a monthly prescription. There's too much intricacy in uh, prescription plans to, to even guess at that number accurately. You're at Sloan Kettering, so um, I'm sure you're most aware of the price of cancer drugs. What trends have you found uh, about cancer drugs over the past few decades? Well, my research group has been tracking them, actually, and going back to the beginning of Medicare, the largest social insurance uh, expansion we've had in this country in 1965, if you look at cancer drugs coming on the market then compared to today, uh, drugs are a hundredfold more expensive than they were then, and that's adjusting for inflation, so it's a true rise. 
And uh, we've recently published a study that asked whether or not uh, that increase uh, has gone along with an increase in drugs working that much better, and it hasn't. We're actually slipping behind in the sense that uh, a drug approved, let's say, 20 years ago would increase somebody's lifespan by a year for about $50,000. The cost of doing that right now is $250,000, again, uh, in today's dollars. So rapid rises in prices far exceeding uh, the important scientific advances we're making. Melissa, Peter mentioned Medicare. Can government programs like Medicare, Medicaid, the VA influence the price of drugs? Well, I, Medicare actually cannot really influence the price of drugs. I mean, at least under the prescription, uh, under the Part D program. But Medicaid actually requires drug companies to give Medicaid the best price that they give any other consumer. So, you know, government, to that extent, has a, a big impact on drug pricing. And why do drug companies charge so much higher prices in this country than overseas? And I throw this out to both of you. Well, my answer is brief, because they can. Uh, there are essentially no forces in place to uh, arrive at prices that are appropriate or sensible or tied to the evidence or benefits of drugs. And so companies are able to extract significantly more profit in the U.S. than they are in other countries that have national purchasing approaches and sometimes use formal economic analyses to find the right price for drugs uh, that they purchase. I had uh, an interesting experience when I was vacationing in France some years back. My eye drops uh, leaked, and I suddenly discovered that I, um, I had no more. I got in touch with my pharmacy in Brooklyn, and he said, well, it would be impossible for me to get them to you in time. Why don't you just go into a pharmacy and ask for them? I said, but these are prescription drugs. He said, well, you're in France. So I went into a pharmacy. I asked for the, the eye drops, and they just opened a drawer and handed it to me and charged me something um, I think it was 25 francs or something. Anyway, then I told the pharmacist in Brooklyn later, and he said, you paid less for it at that pharmacy than I pay for it uh, wholesale to supply my pharmacy. Right. And I, Peter took the words right out of my mouth when he said, because they can. I mean, because it really has to do with the fact that the way that insurance operates in this country, and he alluded to it when he said that there's no single price that doctors can actually find for what they're, for what a, a drug will cost a given patient. Um, drug companies are taking advantage of the fact that, that oftentimes um, insurance companies were paying the bill for a long time, and so people didn't pay attention. And they're also, to be honest, taking advantage of the fact that in life-saving situations, people need these drugs, and, and there aren't many good alternatives available. In other countries, as he pointed out, there, there are price controls on that to ensure that, that drugs are more affordable. Did Medicare Part D, which covers prescription drugs, have an effect on prices and spending on prescription drugs? Well, it certainly, I would say that in terms of overall expenditures, it didn't, in terms of the share of expenditures of prescription drugs as, as a total of all spending, it didn't. It lowered out-of-pocket costs for drugs for some people, but I mean, certainly the elderly who were eligible and, and purchased a Part D plan, for some of those people, it lowered out-of-pocket costs. But in terms of the actual price of drugs, no, it did not. 
We have a number of calls coming in. I thought we'd take one from Dr. Todd Cooperman from Westchester. Hi, you're on the air. It's hi, Leonard. Um, I'm the founder of a Pharmacy Checker. It's a group that which, is, which has been checking the prices uh, that people can get uh, medication from Canada and elsewhere from. Uh, we just uh, did an analysis and found that the cost is eight times greater, eight times uh, in the U.S., and this is for you know, kind of maintenance medications, things like Nexium, Crestor, Abilify. Um, and at the same time, um, the, the government just put out rules uh, a few weeks ago uh, enhancing its ability to now destroy drugs that are personally imported into the United States. Uh, previously, they were uh, holding them or sending them back. It doesn't affect uh, that many people so far, but it's terrible that the government is actually acting against the consumer, in my opinion, and maybe some of your, your, either of your guests might want to comment on that. Well, it's true that there are these large international pricing differences. Uh, and as you noted, in Canada, there's a pretty sizable discount relative to U.S. prices. I haven't heard a number as large as eight times, but I've heard 30, 40 percent, and we've seen that in some of the expensive drugs as well. And, but, but what do you yeah. think about the, the policy of destroying the drugs if people buy them in Canada and, and bring them into the U.S.? Uh, so in principle, the notion is to maintain the safety of the drug supply for people in the U.S., and again, I'm not as aware that uh, the general stance of the Food and Drug Administration is to not enforce the, the provisions at the individual level for individual what's called uh, reimportation uh, of drugs for personal use. So if they have uh, turned up the heat on that, um, that that's news to me. Um, it's, uh, but it, either way, the issue uh, of international price differences exposes the fact that prices in different countries are a product of the markets that those drugs are sold in. And in the U.S., if insurers must include drugs, and in the case of Medicare uh, and in the Part D plans that were mentioned, the laws say that most drugs must be included in those plans. And once you have that situation, prices will be much higher than they are if there's any flexibility on formulary, which is what we see in other countries. And the issue of bringing drugs back in for individuals is to some extent a luxury for the people who can make those trips or an accident of them living close to a border. Uh, and it's certainly not a widespread possible solution to the problem that prices are much higher here. My guests on today's Please Explain are Peter Bach the director of the Center for Health Policy and Outcomes at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, and Melissa Thomason, professor of economics at Miami University of Ohio's Pharma School of Business. We are inviting your calls at 212-433-9692. You can write to us on our show page at WNYC.org on Facebook or Twitter, where our handle is at Leonard Lopate. And we'll be back with more right after this. We're talking about drug pricing on today's Please Explain with Peter Bach, Director of the Center for Health Policy and Outcomes at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, Melissa Thomason, Professor of Economics at Miami University of Ohio's Farmer School of Business. Don't many drug companies do things to persuade doctors to prescribe their products? What kinds of tactics do they use? 
Uh, there, there's quite a bit of interaction between the pharmaceutical industry and prescribing physicians in a number of forms, um, educational sessions direct to doctor, uh, what's called detailing or education. And uh, it is not uncommon for pharmaceutical companies to also either employ doctors or have other relationships with them where they receive various benefits, everything from uh, speaking fees to and consulting fees to other sorts of, of um, incentives. Can they be and, seen as bribes? I'd, I wouldn't use a word like that. Uh, these are relationships that uh, do involve transactions and money, and uh, there's uh, all of this information is now on the Internet about every doctor in this country and how much money they have received from which companies. Uh, and it's a uh, very widespread practice, in some cases hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars going to some doctors who are influential or who are high prescribers. Is there a conflict of interest if a doctor takes consulting fees from a drug company or um, allows those companies to pay for their travel and meals? I think the ideal scenario is one where doctors are only focused on the best interests of their patients uh, to the extent that these relationships allow for uh, an exchange of information and ideas that leads companies to devise smarter products that work better for patients, they're highly positive. To the extent that they help doctors be smarter prescribers, they're positive. Uh, the concern is exactly the one you outlined, that it will skew the behavior of doctors towards a particular company's product when that may not be the optimal choice for the patient, and that's the big concern. Do you want to add anything, Melissa, or should I move on to the Affordable Care Act? No, I, I think that's very true. I mean, we know that doctors... Um, like anybody, respond to incentives, and it's in their patient's best interest to know about lots of drugs, but perhaps even um, subconsciously doctors who are on a payroll or receive speaking fees from a particular company are more likely to prescribe those drugs. Now, what about the Affordable Care Act? Has it affected how much Americans are spending on prescription drugs? Uh, it, it's there's many things happening in healthcare at the same time, and the most important driver of spending on prescription drugs is steady price increases across essentially all drugs, as well as the new introduction of many, many new drugs that cost a huge amount of money that treat very large populations of patients. None of that is due to the Affordable Care Act. It's due to the Food and Drug Administration getting faster and more efficient and cheaper, if you will, to go through for approval. And it's due to unconstrained pricing power for the pharmaceutical industry. And so new treatments for hepatitis C cost billions of dollars. We now have new treatments uh, for high uh, cholesterol, uh, which will also cost billions and probably tens of billions of dollars. So to put this in uh, perspective, last year, overall health care spending rose by about 5%, and people freaked out because that was a more rapid rise than we had seen. But overall spending on drugs was 16%. So, and it is outstripping every other sector of health care. And the real reason for that is every other sector of health care is under some sort of pricing system where the cost of the health care is somehow linked to how much it is to either produce it or its relative value or something like that. While there's unconstrained pricing ability by pharmaceutical companies and they are being more and more aggressive about taking advantage of it, 
And so companies like Turing and Valiant, although they've made the front page, they are manifestations of an industry-wide behavior, raising prices of very old generic drugs, older brand-name drugs, and new drugs at introduction. Let's take a call from Ashok in Warren, New Jersey. Hi, you're on the air. Hi, thank you for taking my call. Um, just giving you a perspective, I'm a pharmacist, and part of my professional career, I did work for pharma R&D, uh, but so I, I have a general perspective of health care cost, and I agree that why drug cost is so much higher than the rest of the Western world. But that goes saying also the everything from the hospital cost to doctor's fee and number of tests we do, and, and drug cost is only a small part of the total health care cost. I think because AMA and the hospital union is much stronger, I think as a consumer we need to look into all aspects, including drug industry. I think everything is out of control. But uh, I want to I ask about, you mentioned R&D. Uh, yes. It's often cited as a reason that uh, drug prices are so high, at least for new drugs. Are we the only people in the world who are paying for R&D, the American See, public? This is the issue, and I agree with you. Why pharma industry has so much price for drug price? But then at the same time, why in uh, angioplasty or any other procedure in this country higher than even Switzerland and Germany? Okay, well, let's, uh, let's ask the doctor. Well, it is true that we pay more for other services than uh, uh, most other countries, like Switzerland and Germany that were just mentioned. Uh, the issue of R&D costs is uh, not correctly attributed just to the U.S. The issue, companies are selling products in European countries because they are profitable to do there as well. And they're simply able to garner more profits in the U.S. But all of this ties together with um, R&D being, you know, uh, supported across their entire market across different countries. That you know, what we really need to think about is that, like other aspects of healthcare, we should be paying for drugs based on their value, how well they work. And drugs that are highly effective should be able to garner large sums, but drugs that are relatively ineffective should not be able to have price increases like we've seen or even garner high prices uh, just because at the time other people are charging those kinds of prices, and that's what we see in the U.S. We, so let's, talk, let's talk about that, though, for a minute, because I totally, as an economist, I totally agree with, with you on that point, is that drugs should be based on how well they work. On the other hand, so it, and the way that there's a lot of things, but the R&D situation that the caller just mentioned is one that pharmaceutical companies often turn to, and they say, well, the prices here subsidize the low prices that we can offer in other countries. But as um, Peter mentioned, too, it's also the fact that markets tend to work best when they're competitive, when other firms can enter, when information is free, freely available to all parties. And the problem with healthcare in general and um, pharmaceuticals specifically is that there are limits to competition. So, for example, we have patents on drugs that enable companies to charge ridiculously high prices. And that it's also, you know, we have manufacturing processes and other things that make it difficult for people to readily enter the market when companies like Valiant buy a company and then raise the prices of their drugs. 
And then finally, we have this overarching presence of insurance, which makes everything in the U.S. more expensive than it is in other, company, in other countries, because unlike in other countries, we ignored prices for years, and insurance companies just paid whatever um, providers, um, pharmaceuticals, doctors, hospitals asked. And now it's all coming home to the fact that it's becoming unaffordable for everybody. I'm speaking with Melissa Thomason, professor of economics at Miami University of Ohio's Pharma School of Business, and Peter Bach, director of the Center for Health Policy and Outcomes at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. This is WNYC, WNYC.org. I'm Leonard Lopate. It's Please Explain, looking at drug pricing. Our number here is 212-433-9692. You can write to us on our show page at WNYC.org or on Facebook or Twitter, where our handle is at Leonard Lopate. And along the lines of what we've just been talking, Elizabeth on Twitter says, my son just got a three-week prescription for, for doxycycline for $257. Two years ago, it was $10. There are multiple drugs to treat Lyme disease. Does the increase in the cost of one drug for a disease drive up prices for other drugs to treat the same condition? Uh, that's a great question, and uh, at least in the area of oncology, which is where I tend to focus, uh, we see that exact phenomenon, which you shouldn't see in a normal market. Um, as the uh, caller, I guess the tweeter in this case, points out, in a competitive market, if you had different treatments for the same condition, these treatments and the companies that make them should be battling it out for market share based on lowering prices. But in fact, we see in the specialty drug realm, uh, if a new drug comes on that is a competitor to an older drug, it almost always has a higher price. And then the company that makes the older drug raises their price to meet it. It's like a mirror image of what should happen. And it is because of not only the monopoly protections, but a general reluctance to allow drugs to compete in a normal way. A, a caller wonders um, uh, about the fact that her insurance company forces her to buy generic drugs. Is that a good thing? Uh, the, the caller asks if generic drugs are safe and well-tested. Uh, so in terms of generic drugs, uh, we have a tried-and-true approach to uh, testing them. Uh, there is really no evidence except very, very few drugs uh, that uh, generic drugs are less effective or less safe than the brand-name competitors. But here again, not to harp on this issue, uh, the price inflation on generic drugs has been very sizable. We have long relied on brand names switching to generics to give us some savings to pay for the new drugs. Uh, and we don't see that anymore. Now we see the generic drug manufacturers also taking advantage of what is effectively monopoly pricing power. Uh, for many of the rare drugs, there's just not enough producers in the market to compete. So it's yet another market failure. And it's why the price, what we spent on prescription drugs went about, up about 15% against or 16% against a background 5%. But, you know, to get to this point, all of this talk about pricing uh, really reflects this uh, question that, you know, maybe we should be paying for prices based on the value of treatments if we can't get competition to work, if we want to give monopoly power and we do to keep innovation going, then we should be seeking to find the right price based on science and based on the evidence about these treatments. And that would rectify many of these other problems of broken markets that are allowing this price increases. Let's take another call. Linda from Bridgeport, Connecticut. Hi, you're on the air. Hi. Um, I'm calling about two things. One is um, one of your guests mentioned that doctors can't tell what a drug costs. 
and I recently had an experience with a dermatologist prescribing an ointment, and he looked in a little book, and he said, oh, my God, this one's over $200, and then looked again to see what else he could prescribe. What was interesting is he was prescribing two different things for me, and I got to the pharmacist, and the other one was well over $100. But by that point, I had been online long enough, and what a lot of consumers probably feel is, oh, my God, I'm not going to spend much more time on this. But I'm wondering if doctors could, if they could look it up or could say to a, a, a patient who doesn't need the drug immediately, call your pharmacy, find out what it costs. If they had something equivalent, call my staff, and we will email in a prescription for the lower-priced drug. I mean, that means consumers have to be better about their own take, taking care of themselves. But what about doctors? Uh, Hagop Kantarjian who heads the Department of Leukemia at the University of Texas's MD Anderson, said that prescribing drugs that could bankrupt a family is a violation of the Hippocratic Oath. What do you think? Melissa? What do I think? Well, I think, I, think it's a, I think it's a combination of things here. I mean, Peter's um, talking about the fact that we need scientists to determine prices. And for an economist, I'm, I, I'm confused by that because, to me, prices are determined in a market. And the market's failing here. But part of it is information. So I'm going to go back to um, the ACA again. And one of the benefits of the Affordable Care Act is that it's providing incentives for, for providers to um, look at standards of best practice, and that's information. I mean, one of the things that we need to know about drugs, which is exactly what he says, how well do they work? And so we need what we need are ways, if we can't determine prices and the prices are racing out of control and there are structural impediments to competition, which there are, one of the things that we can do is improve information. So doctors can have information about the effectiveness of various drugs, the prices of various drugs, or at least point consumers to directions where they can get that and hopefully give consumers options. Now, cancer drugs seem to be rising uh, faster than others. Um, is there a reason for that, Melissa? Well, I think that cancer... Uh, is one of these conditions where, you know, it's a very scary and people understand that it's a life-threatening condition. And so in economics, we would say their willingness to pay goes up significantly. And in, if, you know, even if it does bankrupt you in the moment, you're willing to pay that price. Peter, and a one, lot of times, go ahead. if you have insurance, you don't have to pay that price. And so that leads these companies to set these outrageous prices for some of these oncology drugs. Peter, one drug that your hospital had a big influence on was Zaltrap. What's Zaltrap? Uh, Zaltrap is a drug uh, used to treat colon cancer, and when it came on the market in 2012, uh, we rejected it from our hospital formulary, and our doctors agreed that they wouldn't use it because it cost twice as much as a drug we consider to be equally good, a drug called Avastin. To put this in perspective, and this echoes Melissa's point, uh, the drug Zaltrap, the out-of-pocket cost for somebody in Medicare for that drug per month exceeded $2,000. It was about $2,100. That is equal to the median income for somebody in Medicare. That's all the money the average person takes home before taxes, that one copayment. So it was really a sort of an extreme example of a drug that provided no additional benefit and cost way more than another drug. But uh, I'm going to take a small, I think Melissa and I disagree to the extent of the market break here, how problematic the market is. The idea of using information about how well drugs work 
to find prices makes sense. The idea of having to have patients and doctors trade off, for example, between one drug that works a little bit better but costs a lot more versus another one, I think is unworkable. And the reason is because the goal here is actually to cure disease, to tackle cancer, to make patients feel better. And so we should be doing that with the best drugs in our armamentarium. And the way to get there is to just make sure the prices kind of work for that purpose. Uh, but we shouldn't be asking doctors or patients to make the trade-off. We could make that trade-off between Zaltrap and Avastin because we could prove that the drug was not better at all. Just one uh, more, one more thing, ahead. Melissa. A lot of the R&D is done in universities or other labs with government subsidies. Uh, why mm -hmm. doesn't that seem to have an impact on the final price? We were already paying for the thing, uh, largely for the thing to be developed well i mean well presumably it should now i don't i don't actually have data on how much is actually being done at universities now i know that as you know the the grant situation as government funding has fallen has become you know grants grants have just fallen across the board in terms of government budgets and things like that so there is some public aspect to that and i do think that should be figured in and, and, but I also do think, and I, I understand exactly where Peter is coming from. In fact, Peter, I'm so glad you mentioned the Zoltrap thing because I use that in my course as exactly the right move. When you have a study and you can actually, as you do at Memorial Sloan Kettering, have the impact to really shape a market force, that was tremendous in helping keep that drug off the market and, you know, lower its price. But as an economist, I want to say, well, how do you, how do you say what is the right price? And if the price is low enough, how do we know we don't change long-run incentives for drug development? Yeah, well, those are great questions. And we have uh, no time, so we, you got to give me a very quick answer. Yeah, well, no, I actually want to talk about this public investment question. Uh, we have technological advance because we're constantly investing as a society, and private sector takes that and goes with it. That's why we have Apple. That's, you know, that's from NASA. And so the difference here is that when Apple makes a product, we as consumers can see it, feel it, touch it, and decide to buy it. The difference with pharmaceuticals is they take public investment, they create products, and then they sell it back to the government, who is a mandatory buyer, right, in Medicare and Medicaid and the VA and all the exchange plans, and in fact, many of the other insurance products, too. So that's the difference, is that it loops all the way back to society, and they can extract maximum profits. And so that's where the problem is, not in public investment and research. We have pretty much run out of time, and I thank both of you so much for being on our show, Peter Bach. Director of the Center for Health Policy and Outcomes at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, Melissa Thomps Thomason, Professor of Economics at Miami University's Pharma School of Business. We've been talking about prices, uh, drug pricing on today's Please Explain. Thank you again. Thanks for having me. Thank you me. very much.